listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Good morning, South Point. How many of you uh, maybe uh, suffering from a little, I had too much food, I didn't get enough sleep, and I spent too much money, kind of a hangover this morning, uh, because if that's you, then I'm right there with you. Um, I want to talk to you guys a little bit today. We're going to be turning your, your Bible to 1 John. We're going to get there in just a, just a second. But all jokes aside, this can definitely be a time where people will begin to feel a little melancholy. Right here after, after Christmas, all the anticipation of spending time with family and, uh, and giving and receiving and celebrating Jesus on uh, Christmas Eve, and, and now it's the day after Christmas, and it's kind of like, ah, about to have to go back to, go back to work, and kind of all this stuff of the season is kind of past. I remember really nice uh, metaphor for Christmas for me when I was growing up, um, we we, uh, I don't know if you were like me growing up, my, my parents would never let us have a real tree. So we always had an artificial tree. Uh, and it was great. It was a nice tree. But one year we begged and begged and begged, and they finally let us get like a real tree. Okay, And so it was this nice, big, beautiful tree. My uncle had a Christmas tree farm, and so we were able to pick out the best one and decorated this whole thing, and it just made the house smell so nice and Christmassy. And man, it was just a great Christmas. I remember I was probably in you know, fifth, fourth or fifth grade, something like that. And uh, after Christmas was over with, instead of putting it in the box, my parents were like, all right, well, take the tree down to the pasture, you know, just throw it out there somewhere. And I was like, wait, 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 we're just going to take the tree and just throw it out in the woods somewhere? Like, the, this is our tree, you know, that's our Christmas tree. And it's like, yeah, you got to just take the tree and throw it down there. And then like for years after that, every time we're playing down there, it's like, there's our Christmas tree, like slowly rotting away, you know? Uh, and, and it's like, man, that's, in some ways, it really kind of symbolizes, like, what happens with Christmas. It's like we're all at this anticipation, and then it's just, it's gone. You know, the moment's past, the moment's gone. Uh, Chris texted me this, this week, was like, hey, wh- what are you going to preach on? And I was telling him a couple of things. I was like, you know, I wanted to be really hope-filled this week. So hope you're feeling that right now, like the, the, the full of hope as you're thinking about that rotting Christmas tree. But, uh, no, I'm going to bring you down low really quick, and then we're going to, we're going to see the hope afterwards. We've got, to get, we've got to get low first, though. So um, the second thing I want to mention is uh, this is actually something that Christy Cook shared with our life group like a couple weeks ago. Um, and she was talking about that, that Christmas song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Um, and you, you probably don't remember that song because we don't really sing it a lot because it's in like a minor key. Uh, and so we don't really like, it's kind of, it's a downer. The song's a downer. Let me, let me give you a couple, I'll give you a couple of little, it's a, I heard the bells on Christmas day, their old familiar carols play, the wild and sweet, the words repeat, peace on earth, good will to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned, peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the household born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I never really probably listened to the words of that song before. I don't think they actually sing all those verses in the song. Uh, they kind of leaving a few of those out. But the story behind it was pretty interesting. It's, it's actually, it was actually a poem first written by Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. And the dude had a really messed up couple of years during the Civil War. Um, his, uh, he woke up one night and saw his wife on fire. Like she got lit on fire by a candle. And he tried to put her out. And then he tried to use his body to put her out. And she died in his arms. And he gets like third degree burns all over his whole body, which like deforms him physically. Uh, then his, a couple years later, like a year later, uh, his son sneaks off to go join the Union Army and fight in the Civil War. And he finds out uh, just before Christmas that his son's been wounded and is probably not going to survive. And he wakes up on Christmas morning and hears those bells ringing. And this, this is what he writes, kind of in the midst of that, like sorrow and despair. And it also made me think about uh, Psalm 42 and 43. This is like kind of one poem uh, that uh, ancient Hebrew wrote, a couple ancient Hebrew folks wrote. Um, and if you want to, you can look there if you want, or you can keep your, your finger there in 1 John. But I just want to kind of put this as a frame as well. Um, and this is getting back to when, when we're thinking about the ancient uh, Israelites and the, the, the Jewish people kind of anticipating the coming of Jesus. This is a, a song that they would sing and uh, something they would meditate on constantly. And I think it really kind of frames what we're going to see today uh, really well. So it says, starting in, in chapter 42 of the Psalms in verse 1, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, of Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roars of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Vindicate me, God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. So into this context, we have 1 John. And the immediate context there is, is twofold. So first we have the people of Israel, who, who Jesus is coming into the world as the light for. And we have a people who for 400 years have not heard this direct revelation from God. It's as if God has been silent. 
They'd gone through exile and kind of come back into a, a, you know, nowhere near as glorious kind of kingdom as they might remember. And so they're, they're waiting in anticipation of God to bring about some kind of deliverance. They're feeling this oppression from the, the Romans and from the little puppet king Herod who's been set up above them. And so into that, the light of the world is going to come in Jesus. But you also have the direct context of the people who John is writing to. And so he's actually writing about 50 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's writing to a, a, a growing church uh, a, with a growing identity, a separate from the Jewish people, and yet in the eyes of the Romans, still kind of connected as just another group amongst many groups. And this is at a time he's probably composing this right about the time that the temple is destroyed, uh, that the, the, uh, the ultimate hope for the Jewish people is once again just kind of snuffed out from the world. And so in about the, the year A.D. 66 or so, the, the, there's a, you read about the zealots in uh, the New Testament and when we're reading through with some, some of them, were, one of the disciples is a zealot. Well, the, this group rises up against the Romans and tries to, to rebel against them and throw off their rule. And they have a little bit of success for a couple of years, but then ultimately the Romans bring in the big guns and they send in uh, a guy named Titus who's going to come one day be emperor. And he comes in and completely destroys Jerusalem, completely destroys the temple that's there. The temple has never been rebuilt. If you know anything about it today, it's, there's a little piece of the wall left. It's the Wailing Wall where to this day, several you know, thousand years later, uh, Jewish people gather to cry and, and cry out to God there in mourning for the loss of this temple. And so this is the context that John is then writing to these people who are now experiencing persecution for the first time. You know, even in Jesus' day, there was still some level of protection for uh, Jewish worship. That's gone now. Uh, so Christians and Jews alike are being persecuted. And so this is the context that, that John is speaking into when he writes this gospel account. And so a gospel that's very different than the, what we call the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they're pretty similar. And we can see from the very beginning that the, while the, the content is very much the same, there's different emphasis uh, at different places in this passage. And so into that hopelessness, into that fear into that suffering, we have this message that, that John is going to deliver. And so in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to do uh, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so the message of hope to the people of Israel, the message of hope to the Christian community now facing persecution, even Christians who many of them had, uh, were, were feeling some kind of connection to Jerusalem and to the temple, to the community there, many of whom were lost in what Josephus says, maybe over a million people who were killed in this destruction of the temple. So even people who were Christians and believed in Jesus, there's a great loss that they feel with this. Into that, he says, this is the light into a dark world, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. There's nothing in this world that's going to give us that hope and that peace like Jesus is going to give us. We don't place our hope and our trust in a physical representation, which is but a shadow of the reality that we have in the person of Jesus. And while many of you were wondering, was this the end of the world when the temple is destroyed? And now you're left to say, well, now what is left after this? You know, we thought Christ would have returned already. You know, where is he? He says, he is with you. He is still the light of the world for you today. And he's the light of the world for us as well. And so how was he, how was Jesus the light of Israel is the first thing we want to see. How was Jesus the light of of Israel. We, the, the, the metaphor, the image of light was something that the Hebrew people would have been very familiar with as people who are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. It's going to come, come up again and again throughout scriptures. Uh, the, the light was a really important metaphor in Job. There's actually in uh, Job 3, 16, he talks about how not to see the light of God is to basically be stillborn spiritually, to have no real life. To receive light is to receive life. You can see that again in a place like Proverbs 26, 15. So the, the light is also joy. There's this incredible passage in Esther where we kind of move through the story of Esther. And after God saves the Jews through Esther in Esther 8, we see this great passage where he says, um, the Jews had light and joy and gladness and honor. And it says, not just the people there, but the people far off who heard the decree that the Jews were saved and to be spared have this, this joy and this light and this honor. In Psalm 97, 11, we see that light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright of heart, that God is literally sowing light into people's lives so that we see that light brings joy and light also brings hope of salvation. Psalm 13.3 says, Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. The, the, the Hebrew people didn't have a great conception of what the afterlife was going to be. That theology of, of heaven and hell and, and the afterlife wasn't really worked out very well for them yet. But they knew enough to trust that if he keeps me awake, if I have the light of of God in me, then I don't have to fall into that sleep of death. So I have that hope of eternal salvation uh, in him and in his light. 
light allows us to see God's goodness and truth. In Psalm 17, the psalmist says, The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening my eyes, allowing me to see. I can't see the world as it really is unless God brings his light into my life and into my heart. This light signifies these incredible truths for the people of Israel that they would have picked up on immediately as John's writing this light to them. But the opposite is also going to bring some incredible meaning into them. So, so as light signifies these great truths, darkness, the absence of that light is going to be powerful for them as well. So as light signifies life, darkness signifies death. Job described death as the land of darkness and of shadow and of gloom. This is what sin and separation from God can do. This is what Job feared, separation from God, death, darkness, gloom. The absence of the light of God is how Job describes it. So again, there's not this full conception, but a very true and accurate conception in in the Hebrew Scriptures that light and life are in God and that death brings separation from God and darkness, and that to be saved from this, we need the light of God to enlighten us. We need the light of God to be sown in to us. As as a little aside, a thing that I think we need to stress in all this is that God is not the cause of darkness in our lives. That all of us are going to have darkness in our lives, and that God is not the ultimate cause of this darkness. He is the antidote for the darkness in our lives. It's, it's easy and it's common and it's even almost understandable at times when we're going through struggles, we're going through difficulties to say, why? You know, why is this happening? Why is this going on? And it's important for us as believers who trust in the goodness of God to remember that the, the darkness is not from him, that he's the one who sends his son as the antidote to that darkness into our lives. He sends the light, Jesus, to drive out the shadow and the darkness from our lives. And his light signifies joy and gladness. Darkness denotes evil, sorrow, calamity, mourning, grief. We see that in Zephaniah 1.15. There's a, a passage in Amos 5.18. Um, I want to read for you right now. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord. Uh, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. So he's saying for, for, for some of us who are, don't have that righteousness sown into us, it, Amos is talking to people who have despised the Lord, who've turned away from him. He's saying for those of you who are separated from God, it's like you're running away from a lion, you turn around a corner and boom, there's a bear attacking you. Or if you're, you make it to safety and you're in your house and you, you're like, whew, and you lean up against the wall and there's a snake on you. It's like, don't, if we're separated from God, is death around every corner. It's trouble and calamity around every single corner. That's why Micah is able to speak so clearly and say, when I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. 
And so we can see throughout the Old Testament scriptures for the Hebrew people, this metaphor, this image of, of light and darkness is, is a common one that they understand very well. So it's into this context which John is writing. And he's setting this story that's going to be very familiar to the people of Israel in the beginning. But that's going to remind them very much of a scripture they're very familiar with back to the Genesis 1.1. But he's He's changing it like he's going from a minor key to a major key, maybe. It's the story they're familiar with, but it's told in a little bit of a different way. He's setting the story of Jesus into epic proportions. It's something that's going to bring about both global, ultimate salvation, but also very personal, intimate salvation, where God is going to drive out the shadows from the world and drive out the darkness from the world, but he's also sending his son to drive out the darkness and the shadow from my life and your life as well. So God's word and his light are both popular Old Testament images, and God sends them out in this passage to to do his work. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone is coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, But to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so he's setting this kind of in that Old Testament passage. We missed a lot of these things, he said. God came and spoke to us in in different times and ways through the Old Testament. The light broke through in certain ways in the Old Testament scripture that we know, but we didn't recognize it. We didn't know him. We didn't hear it. We didn't see it in full. But now in Jesus who's come, we see the whole picture. Now that the shadows are being driven out, it's not just a few little pinpricks of light coming through the darkness anymore. It's now the light that's there that's driving out the darkness from the world and from our lives. Uh, another popular metaphor that, that John is going to use in this passage, you know, we, we, he's already speaking to this, this Hebrew audience, but he's speaking to a, a Greek audience as well. And the idea of this, this logos, uh, the word, is a really important metaphor also. And if you, if you were to just look at verses 1 through 5, uh, it very much could have been like, a, uh, like, a, like something that uh, uh, Plato or somebody would have said. It could have been uh, like Neoplatonist or it could have been you know, Gnostic kind of a thing, uh, which was the opposite of what most of the Christian writers were trying to do. This is the idea that there's this light and there's this goodness in the world. But where things really take a turn and change is what we see in both verse 9 and verse 14. So the the Greeks believed that there was this perfect world. There was this perfect God, this perfect light out there. But it was not something we could attain because we're in a sinful creation. And the, the light of the goodness, the word, that perfection was like kind of unattainable for us in this physical plane. So what John is going to say, though, in verse 9 and in verse 14, he says, the true light enlightens everyone is coming into the world. And then he says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is the kind of thing that would have both rubbed the Greek philosophers and the Hebrew people the wrong way. This is where the story takes a hard right turn and becomes something uniquely Christian. But ultimately, he's going to end in this hopeful note that says, if you want Greek philosopher to see that perfection, if you want to see who God is, 
you have to see it through this person who's coming to the world, Jesus. And Hebrew people, if you want the fulfillment that we've talked about, the light that's been hinted at through the temple and through the law and through the, through the Old Testament prophets, if you want to see what they've been hinting at, you see it in the person of Jesus. Through your philosophy, you haven't been able to see this perfect image that you, that you hope and you theorize is out there. Through the Old Testament, you haven't been able to attain this perfection. We still have suffering. We still have darkness. We still have shadow. And yet, in the face of Jesus, we can see the face of God. In the person of Jesus, we can see God himself. And Jesus is going to do several things in revealing the Father to us. He's revealing the mind of God. The very mind of God is, is made flesh and is dwelt amongst people, and he's going to deliver that to us. He's going to express very clearly God's will. He's going to display God's perfection, the per very perfection of God played out before us in human form, in a way that we can understand and comprehend like we would never be able to understand and comprehend God the Father. He's going to expose God's heart and God's character in a way that's never been exposed before in the gospel. And the fact that he comes and lives a perfect life. The fact that God sends him to earth to begin with. To seek and save sinners who've denied and rejected God. Who've given up every opportunity that they have. Who've brought sin and pain and suffering into the world. And yet he sends his own son to experience the consequences of our sin. To die on the cross so that we can have life and be united with God and see him. That's the hope. That's the good news that John is trying to stress to them. Look, he's saying you're in a broken world. You're facing persecution. You're facing suffering. At the very least, you live a life and then you die because of sin. That's the consequences of sin in the world. We live in a broken and messed up world. We're experiencing, and many of you, maybe this time of year, people can feel it deeper than others. Maybe you're mourning the lives of people that you've lost, that you were close to, that you loved. Maybe you're going through personal struggles in your own life, uh, emotional or spiritual, kind of dark nights of the soul. Or, or maybe there's struggles that I don't even know wh where they can begin. And yet the same message that John is saying to them, he's saying to us, look to Jesus who will show you who God is, what the, the meaning of all of this is, and who can drive out that darkness. It's not, it's not that he's going to eliminate darkness from your life, but it's he's entered into that darkness to be with you and to give meaning to it and to give purpose and ultimately to drive it away once and for all in this hope that we have. And that's what he's promising us in his word. Jesus is going to reveal God to us in his light. He's going to reveal to us a God who is, is ruling, who's in control. Jesus uh, exercises supreme authority over the entire universe and shows us a God who is in control. He's going to show that God is a saving God. Uh, I love what Dane Orland says, that he's a saving God, not a helping God. A lot of times we want a God to help us, but we really need a God to save us. He's a saving God. He's a befriending God. God. Another idea that would have been so strange to some of the ancient Hebrew people is that God could be your friend. And yet scripture makes it very clear that that's exactly what he wants to be for us, a true and steady friend. You can see that in John 15, 15. A preserving God. We fail on our end. 
We, we are going to sin. We're going to reject him at times. We're going to fail the people who love us and the people whom we love. And yet God is a God who perseveres. He's a God who preserves our life and who preserves the covenant for us, this love that he has for us, this relationship that he has for us. He's going to preserve it. He's going to never fail on his end. He's a God who is an interceding God. Jesus shows a God who's, who's literally interceding on our behalf in Romans 8, 34. He's interceding constantly. So as we sin and reject him, Jesus is an advocate on our behalf, saying, remember the cross. When we look at this person, we don't see their sin and failure. We see the righteousness of Jesus. We see what Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf. He is a, a God who returns and finds us and seeks us out. Jesus uh, came into the darkness once, and he's going to come again. He's a, he's a God who will return. And that reality should shape our actions in the here and now as we have confidence in his ultimate return and completion of what he began in this passage that John uh, is going to give us. We also have a God who is a, a tender and loving God in the midst of the, the darkness and sorrow of our lives. Matthew eleven twenty nine is going to tell us this. He, he's humble. He's calm. He's kind. He's long-suffering. His tenderness outstrips and embraces our weakness. He is a, a tender and loving God. And so what does, second thing I want us to see today is, is what does this light mean in us for the world? Okay, so, so Jesus in us is also going to be a light for the world. And this is our kind of response to what, he's, what, what he is for us. This is the, the action that we take as a result of who we see Jesus is and what he is doing in us and in our lives. And so, so what does it mean today that, that Jesus is the light of the world? It means that, that Jesus himself is lifted up to draw people to himself, to draw us to himself and to other people to himself. And he reveals God as lover and savior of the world. This story is the climax. It's not the start. A lot of times we see this as the beginning. This is the climax of the story in this historical event of Jesus entering into the world, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead to bring life and light to mankind. This is the climax of the story. The reality is this kingdom, this future kingdom, God has already reached into the future and brought it in through Jesus and is, is kind of pushing that into sinful creation. The light is driving out the darkness already. He's doing that through Jesus, but now that Jesus has gone to be with the Father, he's doing that through Jesus in us. Don't forget, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us we are the light of the world. It's his light that's come and changed our heart and broken in and driven out the darkness from our own lives and continuing to drive out the darkness in our own lives. And as we walk in that light, we become the light of the world. And so him, Jesus, in us and through us, is we're called to be the light of the world. We have a part in this epic story that he is telling. The kingdom of God is, is growing and expanding in the world through his people and through his church. Not because we're so great, but because Jesus is so great in us. Not because we're special or super, supremely gifted, but because we're not. And yet God has chosen 
to make us into something and to go and be that light in the world, to take a broken people, to take a suffering people, to take a struggling people, to take people who are full of doubts and full of fears, and yet to give them a supreme confidence in Jesus so that when we interact with our coworkers, when we interact with our families, it's different and it's marked by the light of Jesus in us in the world. And so people are able to see Jesus through us, through what we do. What an incredible reality and incredible responsibility that we're called to be that light. Just as Jesus was this light for Israel, this light for us, we're called to then go and be that light for the world. Look at a a passage in in the same gospel in John over in, in chapter 12. Verse 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What he's saying is walk with Jesus so that you can be light-giving people to others. Walk with Jesus so you can become sons of the light yourselves. So we we continue to look to him, to look to Jesus, to gaze upon him as he shows us who God is, as he shows us what the reason for creation is, as he fills us with that trust and with that dependence and with that faith, then we become light-filled people who are able to give that light to others. Another passage in in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to kind of extend this, this same metaphor, 2 Corinthians we're going to look at uh, four, chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 3. He says, Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to the face of, in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay, these physical bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For you who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also be, may manifest in our mortal flesh. What an incredible passage. He says there, Jesus is coming to the world, this light. He's shown this light into our lives. And even though we have it in these, these jars of clay, this mortal flesh, He says, that's to show that the goodness is from God and not from us. And so, yes, we're going to be persecuted. Yes, we're going to be pressed on every side. And yet, because Jesus is in us, we're going to be able to, in our lives, live out the life of Jesus for others, show Jesus to other people, be that that gospel, the good news to others. They're going to be able to see that made manifest in our lives. The good news of the gospel is no, we're not, it's not that the light's completely driven out now, but it's that there's meaning to it. And it's that in spite of 
our sin and our bad choices and the bad things that happen to us and the sin that other people commit to us, that Jesus is with us, that he loves us, that he's a friend with us in the midst of our troubles and trials, that he has a purpose and a plan for what we're, we're going through and what we're enduring, and that as we gaze upon him in Jesus, he pours light into our hearts and souls to drive out the darkness that's there and to help us to be a light to other people. And so as we, we think about that on uh, this day after Christmas, we can respond in, in a couple of different ways. And, and what I hope is that, that our response would, would be to, to gaze upon the light of Jesus, to meditate on who God is in Christ, to learn to love and delight in him, to walk in the light so that we can then be a light for others. As God loves us, we're called to love others. As, he called to be a, as he's a friend to us, we're called to be a friend to others. As he suffers on our behalf, we're called to then suffer on behalf of others, to see the life that we've been given, even the suffering that we've been given, as something that's now filled with meaning that we can use to glorify him. Just as Jesus suffered well and pointed other people to God, we can suffer well and point other people to God. Just as Jesus truly suffered and yet found hope in his relationship with the Father, we can truly suffer and yet find hope in him. And then we can give that to other people. Right now, the good news is that Yes, we can look with anticipation for the time when Jesus returns and he's going to end suffering and pain once and for all. And we can all, with unveiled faces, look upon him in his beauty and in his glory. But the good news is that right now, with Jesus in us, we can begin to be the light driving out darkness in the world around us. That people can see God in us. You can see God in our relationships with others, in the way we treat other people, the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we sacrifice for others. So to bring things home, what we started about in the beginning, well, I didn't read the last verse of the Longfellow poem. We'll start with the verse right above it again. In despair I bow my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peal the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, and bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. So even in the midst of suffering and pain that we, most of us cannot even imagine, to find that faith and hope in God. And then this passage from Psalms that I think I lost my place in now, but I'll find again. Uh, this passage in Psalm 43, I didn't read to the end of that either. And if you're, in, if you're uh, in Psalm 43, we were left off in verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. What have you, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. And so think about this. The Hebrew people constantly praying to God, singing this hymn when they're in exile in Persia, when there's hundreds of years of just absence of the voice of God and they're praying and crying out to God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me back to your holy hill. And John says, he sent the light in the world and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the light that he sent for you 
and for me. And so while, yes, there is great darkness in the world, and while, yes, we may feel that at times more heavily than others, the good news is that God has sent the light into the world. And that's not a light just for one day. It's not a light that's just going to be a feeling that like some Christmas tree is going to rot in a yard somewhere. It's something that's going to be a light that's only going to continue to grow in us, to continue to drive out shadow in our lives, to continue to, through us, drive out shadows in the world until it's going to culminate in Christ coming again and finishing what he started and driving out all the sorrow, the death, the sadness, the pain, and bringing out the fulfillment of that true life and light in Jesus. 